0: Welcome back to the horror. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Episode 99, baby. We almost did it, Joe. We almost did it, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to reach our 100th episode of the podcast.
1: During spooky season of all times.
0: Right by our three-year anniversary. It's all coming together at once. It really is. We'll save the sap for the later episode, but it's cool. It is really cool. And we're really grateful. And we are here with a movie today called The Haunting in Connecticut from 2009. And this is a movie Shay and I talked about doing last Spooky Season because we had a Haunted House theme, but then we decided against it. We picked another movie in its place, but I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) So I watched this movie and then realized after I put myself through hell that I still had two more scary movies I had to watch before our next recording session. So we tackled this movie again. We watched it together. I felt much better about it this time, but here we are finally... (laughs) One year later with The Haunting in Connecticut.
1: And I think I was the primary proponent of guys covering (laughs) this movie because as we know, or you're about to learn about me, I love Mr. Carl Gallner very much. (laughs) He is Colin and Jennifer's body. He is in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which we have not covered, but maybe we will very soon. He's in The New Smile. Like, I just love most of everything that he does. And he is the main kid in this which this came out the same year as Jennifer's Body, which was like crazy to think about. But he's great in this. And I do think the movie holds up in serving up some spook.
0: I also think so. But let's talk about the ladies because we're not here to talk about Kyle. (laughs) Sorry, Kyle. We'll start with our leading lady, Virginia Madsen, who plays Sarah Campbell. And you'll probably recognize that name, Virginia Madsen. She is an Academy Award nominated American actress and film producer. And we know her mostly from the original Candyman, which we covered in episode 69. And she's also in other titles like Dune, Zombie High, The Haunting, Better Watch Out, and Candyman 2021 as a voice cameo, as well as Pray for the Devil. What a woman! Next, we have Amanda Crew. She plays Wendy. She is a Canadian actress with her film debut in Final Destination 3. Oh my fucking God, I knew I recognized her. I
1: was like, where do I know this girl from? Oh gosh. And I love Final Destination 3. It's one of my favorites of the franchise.
0: So, (laughs) wow. Uh, Yes. And she, according to Wikipedia, is probably best known for her role as Monica Hall on the HBO comedy series Silicon Valley. And I feel like I've heard that title, that series title before. I've never seen it, but some of you might know her from there as well. And then we have Sophie Knight as Mary, and she is best known for her roles in the TV shows Second Generation and Walking on Sunshine. Those are our ladies. Getting into some pre-plot trivia, this film is directed by Peter Cornwall. The film is based on a true story for which Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren were paranormal investigators. We've talked about them before in our Amityville Horror and The Conjuring episodes.
1: Which I'm sure is giving credence to it being a true quote-unquote story. Mm
0: -hmm, That's correct. I'm not really talking about them very much this episode because I think we talked about them so much before. And the story was first featured in the novel specifically, again, a novel fiction, In a Dark Place, the story of a true haunting written by Ray Garton. He has since distanced himself from the claims of the Snedecker family, which this is based on, and the Warrens who claim to have investigated the true case. He has continually disowned the book, proclaiming it to be 100% fiction. And according to IMDb, this is Jennifer Lawrence's favorite horror movie. Love her. I know. I love that little detail I put it in here. I wonder if she said that once in an interview or something. But I could just picture her like watching this and be like, ah, like freaking out. I mean, also IMDb, very much like Wiki, I don't believe
1: is like fact checked very often. People just say things. We love talking about IMDb trivia (laughs) because it's fun. But I remember listening to a podcast with Eli Roth once. He was on a podcast with Whitney Cummings, the comedian, and he had talked about how he, as a joke, put on Whitney Cummings's IMDb that she was once married to director Eli Roth. And I guess when he had put it on there, he had just put it on there as a joke. So then that way, when bad interviewers would look up trivia about the person they were interviewing, they would ask her about him because they are very good friends. Uh-huh. And apparently like the guidelines of them checking the trivia got steeper as time went on. So he had to go through so many lines to be like, can you please take this off? Like I'm the one who submitted it. It's not true. It was a joke, but he was just talking about how like IMDb trivia could be true. Could people like put things in there that are like said on Blu-ray editions of DVDs, but it can also be complete bullshit. But it was (laughs) said on IMDb
0: that him and Whitney Cummings were married when they never were. I love that. I love friends playing tricks. So silly, Eli.
1: So you ready to get into it? I dare say. All right. So we open with old timey photos of sad looking families at funerals. And this makes sense because this is death photography, Mm -hmm. which was a thing back in the day. And this is intercut with someone draining a body of blood. Then we get hit with the title card and the based on a true story title card, which haha, we'll be the judge of that. So we open with a woman being interviewed where the interviewer is asking her, why do you think this happened to you? And she's going on to say that we didn't ask for this. We didn't deserve this. We don't know why this happened to us, but goes on to start telling the story of how doctors didn't believe her son would survive. And we cut to the inside of a car with a mom praying over a rosary as she drives and a kid in the backseat making fun of her for doing so. And he very quickly asks her to pull over so that he can vomit. And this is Kyle Gallner playing Matt. And he is looking very not well.
0: The next morning, Sarah and her husband, Peter, are talking logistics. So apparently their son, Matt, has been traveling long distances to a hospital where he can receive treatment for his Hodgkin's lymphoma. I know that in real life, the boy was having issues with Hodgkin's lymphoma, but in this case, I don't know if they ever specify the cancer, but it's some kind of cancer treatment. Sarah is really pushing for some kind of change. Maybe they can rent a house closer to the hospital or they could just move completely, but they're struggling financially. Peter is a little bit tentative to take on the idea of renting and paying the mortgage. There's a lot going on. But as they're having this conversation, Matt hears. So we can see that he's feeling guilt or pressure because of the added financial strain that he is putting on his family. But later we see another montage of the treatments that Matt experiences back at the hospital. This is a tough scene. You know, he's a young kid, he's in high school. Obviously, he's going through a lot of discomfort. It's such a sucky situation. And in her cut with these treatments, we see Sarah going around the town looking for a rental house. And she eventually finds one. She approaches a guy who just happens to be nailing in the for rent sign. He explains to her that it has a little bit of history, that it used to be a funeral home. But she takes a look at it and it seems really charming. But she's not really sure if she's going to go for it just yet. But on the way home from the hospital that night, Matt is so sick in the backseat, she can't stand to have him in the car any longer. So she turns around and takes him back to the rental house. They get the keys for the night, I guess, from the landlord, and they sleep on the sofa.
1: This is where Sarah says, I like this place. And Elise said out (laughs) loud, Sarah doesn't know what vibes are. (laughs)
0: She doesn't. And I mean, the movie, of course, puts in a lot of effort to make you look at the house and feel bad on the inside.
1: Well, it's like how we joke about there's not a blind to be found. There's (laughs) not a light to be found in this house. There's no working lights. No lights. Every light is off. It is dark, spooky, creepy, and they are sharing a mattress on the living room floor.
0: It is also filthy. Just the grime of decades of the same wallpaper, the dust that has accumulated in the corners, like, that has turned into that harsh grime. Like, this place hasn't had a deep clean in so long, and you can tell.
1: So Matt wakes up in the middle of the night to use the restroom. We're getting suggestions of spooky shit with shadows in the background running across the TV screen. As he's about to go lay back down, though, he hears noises coming from the basement, Elisa's favorite room of the house. He descends into the basement to see a portion of the basement that is walled off by a room divider with a glass door. You could tell that there's another room in there and there is an opaque glass portion on the door, but you can't see through it. So he's trying to look through this glass, but there's a jump scare and that jump scare wakes him up from a nightmare and it is now the next morning.
0: He walks around the house to pick out the room that he's going to stay in while he's living there as Sarah inspects the place and finds a bunch of pictures in one of these like window seat cabinets of dead bodies, the same death photography that we saw in the beginning of the movie. So she realizes, you know, this isn't good to keep around the house. So she promptly goes outside and throws them out. Elise says, I can't believe she's just throwing these out. You're renting the home. (laughs) Yeah, girly, you can't be doing shit like that. And look, it gets so much worse. These people are the worst tenants ever. But then she eventually catches back up with Matthew, who is in the basement, and he tells her that he has chosen this room to be his bedroom.
1: Saying, this room kind of picked me. And he had also discovered that there is a dumbwaiter that leads from the upstairs all the way down to the basement. And you had said, the way I don't have an explorative bone in my body... (laughs) Elise was coming in with the hot commentary this entire time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because when he saw the dumbwaiter, he was on the second floor when he found the dumbwaiter. And this isn't like a cute dumbwaiter, like in um, Ready or Not. Right. Like the Ready or Not dumbwaiter was cute because it was like wood and it matched the scenery of the house. It had like a pull-down elevator door. Like it looked like it had class to it. This dumbwaiter has like a metal hatch Like, very stay-out vibes. And Matt just, like, stuck his head in and, like, looked up and down. And I was like, get your head out of the dumbwaiter. (laughs) It's very much, like,
1: metal door and saw game over style. Like, we're talking, like, that kind of contraption. it's just
0: awful. Like, it looks kind of like a tiny safe that you can take all the way from the second floor down to the basement. (laughs) But Matt rationalizes that living downstairs is
1: the best case scenario because it has a private bathroom, which would be really good since he gets sick frequently, that he doesn't have to disturb everybody else. He's again showing that he's feeling a lot of guilt being a financial burden. Now he feels guilt being sick in front of everybody. Matt and his mother both try opening the other half of the basement, but that door is jammed. But they're interrupted when dad and the other kids arrive. So there's a moving montage, they bring his mattress down. Peter also can't open the door. Sarah is trying to mop up a floor to make it more homey for him. But Matt looks down and sees an image of Sarah mopping blood onto the floor. But then it changes back to mop water. So he's disturbed, but moves on.
0: Later on in the kitchen, Matt is helping his mom with some plates. He takes them down from the shelf, sets them on the counter. But when he turns around, he sees that the plates are back on the shelf. And he gets a little bit confused and flustered. He just moments ago brought them down. But then he like bumps into the plates somehow, like maybe they are on the counter still. After all, something happens, he knocks over a stack his mother comes over, she tries to placate him by saying, it, that was my fault. I shouldn't have left those where I left them. But based on the look on his face, she attempts to remind him of something, but he interrupts her and says, I know, I know. The doctor said, if I start seeing things, he'll take me off this experimental treatment that we're on. So apparently he's on some kind of new trial for his illness. And if he starts experiencing hallucinations, then he will be taken off the trial. I appreciate this as far as like a narrative inclusion why he's not telling people what he's seeing or trying to make a big thing about this. He's trying to keep the scary parts that he's experiencing private because he wants this treatment to be successful.
1: It reminds me how in the beginning of the descent, Beth goes over the rules of like, you may experience hallucinations if we're away from the sun too long and goes on to pretty much justify how none of them believe that there are crawlers underneath there because they are like without light. And obviously Sarah, she's like in a fragile state of mind, Mm -hmm. like all that kind of stuff. Like there's a primer to why things go on as long as they do without being adequately addressed. Yes. So it's nighttime. Matt is woken up and is seemingly sleepwalking. He seems to be drawn toward the glass door again, and he watches a man and a boy beyond the glass door. In the scene, the boy looks scared as the man works, and the man is carving symbols into the flesh of a corpse. Matt watches as the man clips the eyelid away from the corpse and slices the eyelid off with medical scissors, and then he wakes up.
0: And this creepy coroner is actually kind (laughs) of (laughs) hot. He's giving like three-piece eighteen hundred suit with a really well-cared-for beard that he like puts wax in to keep it pointy at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Like he's kind of like, ooh. Ooh, but he's bad. He's bad, so. And not bad. He's bad. Yeah, he's bad in a bad way, not bad (laughs) in a good way. (laughs) So the next day, they go to see the doctor again. They come back home, and Mom or Sarah grabs her purse while Matt leans up against the pillar on the front porch, and his hand goes through this ooey-gooey pillar. It looks like there's a bunch of, like, rotting, moldering intestines or body parts in there, Quickly, he comes to realize he's seeing things, and the scene ends.
1: We are back into nighttime. We get some more context that the costs of this treatment are continuing to pile up. Sarah has been staying at the new house with Matt, while Dad and the kids stay at the original house during the week while Dad works. They're having a conversation about how the pills he takes for nausea are $25 a pill. These costs are really starting to add some stress, especially onto Peter, the father, because he is the breadwinner. We get another scene of Matt waking up to see light beyond the door. I wrote, he's serving in these silk PJs. <laughs>
0: yes, a great PJ set.
1: And he sees that the door that has since been shut is now open. It's ajar. So Matt enters sleepily. We're cut to the next morning where his little brother What's his name? Uh, Billy. Billy? Who cares? Comes down the next morning looking for him and finds him in this new room. So we see from Billy's perspective as he opens the door to see Matt standing on the inside. And what's inside? An examination table and a bunch of medieval tools used for coroners.
0: But Billy is young enough that I don't think he like fully realizes. Well, he's not freaked out at first. He picks up a couple of tools and I don't know, just like all these different probing devices. It's creepy. So Matt invites him to get on this table and he starts spinning him around to just goof off. But Billy starts getting freaked out as Matt starts spinning the table faster and faster and faster. He starts yelling at Matt to stop. Matt doesn't. He seems not possessed, but something is making him a little bit mean right now. Like he's kind of entranced as he spins this table. Oh yeah, because as he's spinning this table, he's also having like a half vision where he is seeing an old wooden coffin in sepia tone on the ground and somebody loading sandbags into it. So I think he continues spinning Billy partially because he's curious about this vision and doesn't want to interrupt what he's seeing. Peter comes downstairs having heard this commotion and he sees the morgue. And this is where he realizes that the house used to be a funeral home. He approaches his wife. They have a chat. He's like, why are you lying to me? Blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, you used to lie to me because you were an alcoholic. So I guess we get some backstory that Peter used to struggle with alcoholism. But then the fight is over and they just realize that this is just how it's going to have to be while they stay here.
1: So then Peter has to do some damage control. And I love that he calls a family meeting and he's like, okay, so the house used to be a funeral home.
0: Big deal. (laughs) And I was like, I love how Peter is the only one that's freaked out. Everyone is like, okay. I mean, you could tell like the smaller kids are a
1: little scared, but you know, they're being told by their dad that everything's okay. It's just a house that used to be something else, but now it's theirs. Let's just pray about it. They go to hold hands to say grace, but the joining of hands around the table sends Matt into a vision of a seance. He is going in and out of a vision where he is being put in the place of the younger boy from his original vision, and we come to find out that this boy's name is Jonah. We begin to see visions of this seance where Jonah becomes possessed by a spirit as others watch, but the vision eventually ends Matt wakes back up to realize that he's been squeezing the hands of his siblings way too tight, and he turns to his cousin, Wendy? Yes, cousin Wendy. Who lives with them, that's never yes. really explained, but Wendy is of a similar age to him, and he turns to her very frightfully and says, did you see it? So Wendy takes him away from the table, and Wendy begins talking to Matt, asking what happened, and Matt begins reciting some songs or nursery rhymes that they used to play with as kids.
0: Yeah, so I have this. He recites the part of this poem, One Bright Day in the Middle of the Night, and it goes, One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. The deaf policeman heard the noise, came and shot the two dead boys. And if you don't believe this lie is true, ask the blind man he saw it too. And this poem comes from a tradition in British and Scottish folklore that has no real author. It's considered more as a moral exercise or a lying song in the tradition of the miracle plays than as a true nonsense verse. So essentially, there's some overlap in this poem, as you can probably sense that there is some nonsense going on, lots of contradictions. But I think the thing that stands out about this poem in the context of this film is the idea of the two dead boys got up to fight. Because obviously, we know Matt has been seeing some kind of spirit boy, but we also know that Matt is sick and could be dying. So two dead boys. So I think this kind of serves as like some kind of joining between like Jonah's spirit and also Matt's character. Like there's some kind of camaraderie between them at this point. So later, Matt is receiving treatment at the
1: hospital where he gets talking to a guy next to him about seeing things. This guy seems to comfort Matt being like, hey, listen, I'm seeing things too. We're both in a position where we're kind of straddling that line between life or death, getting these treatments. And if you ever want to talk about it, here's my card. And this guy's name is Reverend... Nicholas. Reverend Nicholas, not Saint, Reverend.
0: But he also talks about his wife dying a number of years earlier. And something about him being in the room with her, obviously very distraught because his wife was dying, but her not registering him because she was, quote, in the valley of death. Like she was so close to death that she was able to see all of these beings in the room who have passed before her, which I think is going to be a theme that comes up later.
1: So we get a scene of Peter going back to work and then making the decision that the kids are going to be staying primarily in the Connecticut house while Peter travels alone for work. We see some creepy things happening, some creepy hands flickering of lights, but everyone's just kind of like brushing it off. Meanwhile, we see Peter pulling up to a bar and then deciding to pull back out. So Peter is very much struggling with his sobriety at this point. These are themes that were sewed toward the beginning. This is where we wrote, the next morning, Sarah leaves for work. Where? Yeah, where? (laughs) All
0: of a sudden, she's like, okay, kids, I'm leaving for work.
1: Which is not to say that, like, she shouldn't pick up a job, especially with these mounting costs, but as far as we know, she's been a stay-at-home mom, and all of a sudden now, like, there's been no discussion of a job. It's just like, I'm off to work, and we're like, what? So Wendy is left in charge. The kids go to play hide-and-seek as Wendy reads outside, matt counts as the other two billy and mary they're both young maybe seven eight yeah something like that it's
0: giving seven and eight it's giving seven and eight
1: (laughs) wendy appears to be like 17 and matt is maybe 15 16 yes so Matt goes to investigate as his siblings hide from him and he starts seeing visions of Jonah packing a bag to escape out the front door, but being restrained and pulled into the basement room by presumably Eichmann, who is the name of this funeral director from back in the day of who we're seeing these visions of. Yes. So obviously not good news for Jonah. Matt goes down to the basement, where at first he sees a bunch of bodies covered in blankets, and then the bodies are uncovered, showing these markings all over them, and the door to the morgue slams shut behind him.
0: He starts screaming, which alerts Wendy, who's sitting outside reading... She comes in to get him, and then Matt comes to, still screaming as he's surrounded by his little brother and cousins. So he feels awkward, and he decides he's going to call Reverend Nicholas after all, so they can have a chat.
1: Because these bodies were then standing up and surrounding him. Oh, yeah. Ew! (laughs) Very scary imagery.
0: Yeah. So Matt tells Reverend Nicholas what is going on and the Reverend tells him that there are obviously spirits for the one that keeps appearing to you, you should ask him what he wants from you. So that night while Matt is in the basement alone, he tries to do some crunches, you know, presumably to try to get his strength up as he's becoming weaker on this trial. All of a sudden, a burnt spirit appears to him. Matt tries to ask the spirit what he wants with him, but there's no answer. Later, the rest of the family, I guess, was out somewhere and they come home. Mary and Billy find a stack of furniture in the living room dining room they yell for sarah who comes in and inspects and finds that matt has stacked himself into a corner and is sitting against the wall fingers bleeding claw marks on the wall terrified
1: it's enough that they take matt back to the hospital and say like hey this behavior is happening this might be a side effect of the trial The doctor does say that his MRIs are clear and he's still a great candidate for the treatment despite the behavior. So the parents leave to go off in their separate vehicles. Dad is going to go back home. Mom's going back to the house in Connecticut. And the dad is very sassy when Sarah points out that he sold his nice car to pay for some bills, which is like, that's your responsibility. You don't need to be sassy about it. But it's showing that the dad's behavior is slowly changing. Meanwhile, Sarah is really refusing to accept that Matthew might be dying. You know, she goes to pull him into this hug, but Matthew has all these radiation burns all over his chest from his treatments. He tries to reason with Sarah being like, hey, if this happens to me, like if I die, and she's like, you're not going to. And he trails off in his sentence like, it's not your fault. So again, he's feeling this huge amount of guilt for all of the stress that he's putting his family under, but we see visions of Sarah praying and then throwing her rosary away and saying, you can't have him, you can't have my son. So there are these subtle undertones of Christianity happening throughout with Sarah praying and obviously the presence of the reverend, very common for a lot of these spooky house movies.
0: We also see in this compilation of Sarah's grief, we also see Peter is back at home, I guess in his like man cave in the basement, crying and playing his electric guitar. And he's wasted. And he is totally wasted. So then that night, we see a shadow looming over Matthew as he sleeps. Upstairs, Matt appears to be acting weird when he joins the others. I wrote, he's so emo. He is. Colin, (laughs) Um, wrong movie. Yeah. The little ones seem kind of disturbed. So Wendy is like, let's play hide and seek, tries to quell the awkwardness. So they go off to find hiding spaces. Fucking Billy gets into the dumbwaiter. Oh my God. And Mary goes into a dark attic. I was like, oh my God, like these are the worst spots. (laughs) (laughs) And you had said to me out loud, like...
1: This is where I couldn't believe it because it's a full staircase that leads to a hatch attic door. And we've talked about hatch attic doors before in Better Watch Out and Black Christmas, hereditary, obviously, mm-hmm. like hatch attic doors. And you're like, well, that's so unrealistic. And I had to tell you that there is a very similar setup in a family member's house of mine where there's a full staircase that leads to like a flat ground that you have to push up. And you were like, I hate that. There's no safety for me anywhere. <laughs>
0: There is no safety. So Mary is looking around for a hiding spot while Billy all of a sudden realizes he's not alone in the dumbwaiter. He senses that dark presence behind him that we've started seeing and he starts screaming. And right as he starts freaking out, Mary's leg falls through a rotted spot in the attic floor. So then she starts screaming. So then poor Wendy has to run upstairs and get Billy out of the dumbwaiter. And then eventually Matt joins them as they try to get Mary out of the hole in the attic floor. It's just like this whole mess. But as they get Mary out of the floor, somebody spots a box or something underneath the floorboards. So Matt reaches in, they open it up, and inside the box, there are a bunch of old pictures of more deaf photography. And there's a little tin of fucking dried up eyelids which we know but they don't realize what they are just yet no and matt at first is confused but then we can see the moment of realization based on the visions that he's had he puts it together but he does not share this information with the class no and there's also in this box pictures of ectoplasms coming out of a boy which we can assume to be jonah So according to Wikipedia, ectoplasm is a term used in spiritualism to denote a substance or spiritual energy. Although the term is widespread in popular culture, like the idea that this ectoplasm can emerge out of a person during some kind of seance, there is no scientific evidence that supports ectoplasm's existence. And many purported examples were exposed as hoaxes that were fashioned from like cheesecloth, gauze, or other natural substances that were just made to look like something was emerging from somebody's body, but it really wasn't. So that's what's going on in these pictures. Like, it's going along with the ideas of spiritualism, the idea that seances can take place to connect with people who are now dead and gone. And ectoplasm is something that came around during the time of spiritualism.
1: And this is informed by Wendy's one woman library montage. <laughs> yes. This girl is going through the archive. She's looking at maps. Like, she is. She's brilliant. Doing the most in terms <laughs> of this exposition because obviously. We have some personal knowledge from Matt being able to recognize who Jonah is through his visions. But through this extended library sequence, we also find out who the funeral director is. And his name is Eichmann. And Jonah was a medium who could contact the dead. And we learn this through a bunch of old newspapers... Eichmann would hold seances using Jonah and they got famous for them. And part of the reason they got so famous is because Jonah could produce this ectoplasm. They read about this one instance where there was a seance in all four sitters of the seance, plus Eichmann were found dead and Jonah was never seen again. There's also some conversation about how the road they take every day to get to the hospital was built through a graveyard. And when excavators were moving the bodies, they just found coffins full of sandbags, which is calling back to that vision that Matt was having when he was spinning Billy on the table. So there's questions as to whether the bodies were stolen. But they bring in Reverend to look at these photos where he does confirm that the little pieces of skin in the tin are eyelids and goes on to explain that it's a practice of
0: necromancy, which this is where I lost the plot and you found it again. Okay, so this is my Cambridge Dictionary definition of necromancing. So according to this dictionary, necromancing is the conjuration of the spirits of the dead for purposes of magically revealing the future or influencing the course of events. And is this where we figured out what the markings meant to... Yeah, and the reverend also says something about Eichmann attempting to control the dead with these rituals I don't know if he speaks directly to the writing because I don't know if anybody else but Jonah knows about the writing or the carving on the skin. Anybody but Matt? Oh yeah, anybody but Matt. Yes, excuse me. So I'm thinking like based on this, it's adding context to what Eichmann was doing with the dead bodies, doing some kind of ritual, writing on them, maybe keeping them from the grave in the first place to try to control them in the afterlife somehow. So I also just, this is just fun fact, because I'm like, this man is a reverend. Like, how do you know all this shit about like necromancing, all of this bleak, dark shit? So I called my dad, (laughs) who was almost a priest once. And I was like, hey, when you were in college, did you have classes on like necromancing? And he was literally like, no. (laughs) So I guess Reverend Nick just likes to do some research on his own time didn't you ask your dad
1: about that too when we were covering the conjuring we were talking about exorcisms like did you take an exorcism class and he's like no No. it's like like, it's "It's a special interest
0: (laughs) yes he's like if you want to know about that you kind of have to go on your own yeah i was like what did you guys study because he studied like latin and theology i was like was there some like there's some conjuring classes in there like were you guys talking about dark shit but the answer was no
1: So the reverend says they should all pray to try to rid this spirit of the house because they assume that Jonah is a malevolent presence. That Jonah, because like his body was never found, like he must be haunting it somehow. So they assume that they just need to get Jonah out of there. So as they all hold their hands to pray, we get a flashback to what actually happened or at least the beginning of what actually happened when Jonah becomes possessed. So we see Matt taking the place of Jonah again in the sepia tone flashback, and we see Jonah spewing the ectoplasm after slamming his head on the table repeatedly, and now Matt is kind of becoming possessed with Jonah's memories. And we can sense that the ectoplasm this time seems to be a little bit more violent than any of the other times that Jonah has experienced. But this is cut off when Sarah comes home and is like, who are you? What are you doing in my house? To oh, yeah. the reverend, because she does not know who the reverend is at this point.
0: But don't forget, in the vision, the ectoplasm blows up. Did we see that at that moment? Yeah. Okay,
1: I did. I just didn't want to spoil it or do the wrong time. So the ectoplasm ends up catching the rest of the room on fire, which yeah. is presumably how the four sitters and Eichmann die.
0: Sarah kicks out Reverend
1: Nick, because she's freaked out. But Reverend was trying to explain to her, like, there's evil in this house that wants your son, and it gets more dangerous the closer he gets to death. And as much as I want to believe he's getting better, we both know that he's not. So saying, like, hey, your son is in a compromising position, but she wants none of it and kicks him out.
0: That night I wrote Wendy skipped her skincare routine because she's <laughs> sleeping in a what Shay pointed out to be a full face of makeup. it yes. With like shimmery white eyeshadow. And she wakes up to the sound of Shay said freaky bats in I her love room. Halloween. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, So she gets freaked out and she goes to inspect one of the bats on the floor that is slightly under her bed. But then she sees a scary, scary shadow guy. Is this the jump scare that broke you? No, this is the jump (laughs) scare that broke me. Um, So Wendy gets her bearings, but we jump to Sarah. She's in a different room. And all of a sudden, a spooky guy appears next to her. When I say I shrieked and jumped up off the sofa and like laughed with tears in my eyes because I was recovering from my scare. I mean it. Shay as my witness. Every animal in your house was very concerned for your well-being. And the worst part is, as we know, I already watched this movie and took notes on it. So I wrote in my notes that there's a jump scare with a spooky guy. I wasn't anticipating the kind of guy it was because it wasn't like Jonah like we've been seeing or some kind of shadow. It was one of the carved up corpses. It just was not what I was expecting and I freaked out. And then I wrote, so I wrote, at first, Wendy sees a scary guy, then Sarah. And then we all see a scary guy because Peter comes home and rages drunk about all the lights being on in the house. He goes from room to room, unscrews all the light bulbs, breaks them in the sink like a crazy man. And Sarah meets him outside and tells him not to come home again if he decides to get drunk again. And he leaves. But now we are in the dark. And as they all try to go back to sleep,
1: they are all awakened again with some electrical shit going haywire in the house. This reminded me a lot of Poltergeist with all the spooky spooky lights that are going Mm. on, which I am now remembering you never watched. That's okay. But you did such a good job talking about it all (laughs) those years ago that I feel like I did see it. This is enough to convince Sarah that she needs some help from a man of God, so she calls the reverend back. They go into the basement where essentially he's using some magnets to try to find where the evil is in the room. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. know. Whatever. But he goes on to say, I can see it. You can't see it because you're strong and healthy, but I can see everything that Matt's seeing right now because he is also undergoing cancer treatment. Yes. He is not in as bad of ways as Matt is at this point, who is like sweating and vomiting in his silk pajamas on his bed. But he goes into the morgue room and says, I'm going to free you like a bird. And what did
0: I say? I'm like a bird. <laughs> yeah, she started singing, which is like the difference between Shay and me when we're watching horror movies. It's mm-hmm. like I'm terrified and Shay's looking for opportunities to sing a little song. Yeah, I am. So and I did. And she did. I found, I found one. <laughs> There's some spooky
1: montages of door slamming, some more frickin' bats, um, <laughs> just shit moving around. And the Reverend reaches into the wall, question mark, I don't know exactly what cavern he's found himself in, and finds a skull showing that there are some remains in the wall, presumably of Jonah, who we are assuming to be the big bad up until this point. Meanwhile, we see a creepy ghost advancing on Sarah and Matt. Matt sees it, of course, Sarah does not. And it all comes to a stop when the Reverend moves the remains outside of the house, I think. There's like a basement window or something, and he's able to scoop up the remains and like move it from beyond the house, which I guess is taking away the influence of the ghost. We see him packing up his car and it's like, I'm going to go bury these remains. Everything should be fine. So he drives away. Sarah is trying to explain to the kids that like, hey, some shit happened, but it's over now. Literally, Matt is like rotting in the basement and he wakes up to see that his skin is covered in the markings mm-hmm. of the dead people, like the scrawling language on his body carved into him. So he screams. Sarah sees him. They call an ambulance to take him away. Meanwhile, the Reverend is seeing
0: Jonah in his backseat. mm mm-hmm. At the hospital, Matt is also seeing Jonah in the room with him, and simultaneously as Jonah is showing Matt the rest of his vision, he is also showing the Reverend the rest of his vision, which is that the night they sat at the seance and Jonah's ectoplasm exploded, it set everybody on fire by accident, but Jonah was fine. And he went to the dying Eichmann on the floor who told him with his last words, they'll be coming after you now, meaning the spirits. Jonah realizes that he needs to get out of this house ASAP because of all of the negative energy that they've been harboring in here based on their activities, their shady business. So he's trying to get out of the house, but you know, the house, the walls are becoming black. They're chasing him. Some door shuts, he gets stuck somewhere. So he takes the dumbwaiter down to the basement. And when he rolls out, he accidentally rolls himself into the incinerator. The door is shut on him by a spirit or a spiritual presence and turned on. And that is where Jonah is incinerated. So we assume then that the remains that the reverend found in the basement were the charred remains of Jonah.
1: Yes, in the cremation station. (laughs) Cremation station! Cremation station! This causes the reverend to call back to the house now, the parents aren't in the house because they are at the hospital with Matt, who is having, like, a weird roommate situation, which, okay. Nothing
0: well, ever happened. Nothing. The co- roommate.
1: It's just, like, he has a mentally ill roommate who's, like, talking to himself, and he ends up giving some exposition a little bit later. But the parents are being told that, essentially, we don't know what's even keeping Matt alive, he could go tonight. After Matt sees the rest of Jonah's vision, he has broken out of the hospital, and this man that was his roommate is repeating the nursery rhyme over mm, and over again, yeah. showing that he, I guess, also sensed some of this interaction. Meanwhile, Wendy gets wrapped up in a shower curtain and tossed around a little bit.
0: Yeah, but after biting into a rotten apple first. Oh, I didn't see that part. You, you oh saw Oh my god. So Wendy's like watching the kids and she takes a bite out of an apple that's absolutely putrefied on the inside. So she spits it on it in the sink and then looks in the fridge, I guess, for another apple. She's like, I'm trying to snack right now. I'm trying to keep this doctor away. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. And everything in the fridge is absolutely putrefied. I thought that was an effective scare. I don't remember in any of the movies we've watched so far, the idea of like rotting food showing this malevolent spiritual presence. But I feel like I've heard about that before. It as a certainly sign. Is, a, is a trope that's used. I'm trying to think maybe in Poltergeist, there was something like that. Yeah, I don't remember it in anything we've covered so far. At least to this extent. Yeah. It's like the whole fridge. She opens the fridge, there's a bowl of fruit on top, that's still fine. But then when she shuts the fridge, the bowl of fruit is like fucked up. So we can kind of see the spiritual state of the house is rapidly declining. And then that's when she goes upstairs to take a shower after taking out a leaky, leaky bag of trash. And then she gets wrapped up in a shower curtain, which is very scary. But she rips through the shower curtain and survives. But when she's in the shower, she misses that call from the reverend who reveals some very important information. He says that through this vision from Jonah, he realized that Aikman didn't remove the dead people's eyelids to make them see in their death, but to make them unseen. And that Jonah was actually the one protecting the house because he was trying to free the souls. And now that he's gone, no one is there to protect the house from these spirits.
1: All right, so we were confused. (laughs) We were confused
0: and then we
1: slept on it. And this is essentially like what we came up with in terms of what the lore is. Because we're like, okay, we understand Jonah and we understand that Jonah died in the house. And we understand that Matt is being haunted by Jonah. But why are we carving up bodies and why are we putting sandbags into coffins? What the fuck is going on? (laughs) So Eichmann and Jonah still ran a funeral home. So Mm -hmm. they got dead bodies. And what we find out through some of this lore in the research montage is that the carving up of the bodies with these specific symbols was creating a binding ritual. So instead of the spirits of these bodies moving on into the next plane, once they are buried, Eichmann was doing some sort of witchcraft bullshit to keep the essence of that person with their body so that they could make a business of Jonah conjuring them during these seances. Mm -hmm. then that way they could tell these families, oh my gosh, Jonah has made contact with your so-and-so beyond the grave and they could make money off of it. But also just any old person who wanted to experience a seance or a psychic could sit down with Jonah and there would be very much like talk to me, the pick of a litter in terms of spirits that were just around and were just going to sit in with Jonah and have him be a conduit and they would just have like this entertainment experience. So Jonah obviously wasn't really into this because his abilities were being exploited, which is why he was trying to escape the house prior to sitting with that last seance. But Eichmann was like, no, you are my cash cow. You're going to stay here. And then filling the caskets with the sandbags was them not actually putting their bodies to rest. They kept the bodies
0: in the house. Yeah, and we're gonna, we're about to see those bodies because Matt grabs an axe And escapes from the hospital or vice versa. He escapes from the hospital and then he grabs an ax and he (laughs) is approaching the house from the back and Wendy is sitting out there and she sees him approaching and she's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? He won't answer her. So it looks like Matt is possessed and is attempting to kill everybody in the house. I wrote, maybe he's possessed. No, he just has poor communication skills because once he's actually axing through the door and gets into the house, he forces Wendy and the kids to leave shuts himself in the house, blocks off the doors with furniture to make sure nobody can get in, starts axing down the walls in the living room, which after some time sends body after body after body after body tumbling from inside of the walls, like all four walls in the living room, which is where they had those seances. And then he starts lighting it up.
1: And he even says to Wendy, don't let them put out the fire. I'm already dead anyway. Pretty much saying, like, I am sacrificing myself. Don't let anybody come in for me. I'm going to end this once and for all. Again, the house dies around him and these spirits begin surrounding him. I mean, he is still a man with cancer. So he is very close to death, especially now with all the smoke inhalation. Yeah, not good. So parents finally arrive back. Peter is held back by the fire department, but Sarah is able to break in and hold Matt as he dies, and the spirits around the room start dissipating as their bodies are burned, meaning that they are finally being put to rest. They take him outside, they are trying to resuscitate him, Reverend has arrived on the scene- Matt is getting a vision of Jonah in a graveyard, and he kind of is sensing that he has a choice to follow him, but he is also hearing the voice of his mother calling to him from next to his body. As Matt coughs awake and is resuscitated, Reverend looks next to him to see an unburned Jonah standing next to him, giving him a knowing glance, Mm -hmm. pretty much saying that Jonah had occupied Matt's body in order to give him the strength to burn the bodies. And now Jonah, being that his remains have been spread, can now move on from the house. This is again where you screamed,
0: you're renting the house. I know, the house is totally going up in flames. Just the worst tenants. But also this moment is kind of a little bit bittersweet because we know that Reverend Nick is still seeing Jonah. The Reverend is still sick. Like he's still closer to death than the others because we see him see Jonah, but Matt doesn't see Jonah anymore. Like he's past that somehow. It's like immaculate conception, immaculate regeneration
1: of white blood cells because now the cancer has gone.
0: I think we were supposed to assume that maybe the trial wasn't working like it should have because of all of these negative spirits who were preying on his already vulnerable state. But yeah, you're right. How? (laughs) Um, Anyway... So the house goes up in flames, but the reverend smiles all as well. And we close on a voiceover from Sarah. She says, she knows what happened. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Her son is alive and well, and that's all that matters. They say that God works in mysterious ways. They just don't tell you how strange those ways can be. Consider yourself warned. And the movie ends. Okay. Yeah, so let's get into a little bit more information about this, quote unquote, based on a true story. So according to an article from All That's Interesting by Amber Breeze and edited by Matt Crabtree titled The True Story of the Terrifying Events Behind the Haunting in Connecticut, the setting for this movie is accurate. So the Snedeker family, which is what we see Sarah's family based on in the movie, really did rent a home in Connecticut to be closer to the hospital while their son was receiving treatment for Hodgkin's lymphoma. They found out early on that it was a funeral home when some funerary items were found. And Carmen, who is the person Sarah's character is based on, confirmed it with the owner. And then the boys, plural, like Philip, who is the person that Matt's character is based on, and his brother Bradley, who I guess we can assume Billy's character is based on, both chose to have their room in the basement. So in real life, these two brothers maybe were probably a little closer in age, I'm assuming, and they lived in the basement. Then the hauntings began just after move-in. Carmen, again, the person Sarah's character was based on, told People Magazine in an interview later that, quote, my son started seeing this young man with long black hair down all the way to his hips. He would talk to my son every day. Sometimes he would threaten them. Other times he would stand there and just say his name, which was enough to scare him. She also claimed that there was time when the water she was using to mop turned blood red and began to smell. So we can assume that scene where we see Sarah mopping the floor in the basement was based on this moment. The most terrifying claim that both Carmen and her husband, who Peter is based on, made is that, and this is like a content warning, a sexual assault content warning, so if you don't want to hear this, you can skip ahead 10 seconds or pause and move forward, but they both claimed that unknown forces raped and sodomized them. So the movie, I guess, frames like Matt as the only person who's experiencing the extensive effects of this haunting, but in the story that this movie is based on, it seems like everyone was really terrified. So the haunting allegedly began causing Philip to react really violently, who once attacked his cousin and left her so wounded that she remained in the hospital for 45 days. Ooh. Okay. And then after about two years, the family moved out. But many people think the whole thing is a hoax, including their neighbor (laughs) who lived next to them at the time.
1: I mean, again, it's giving very much Amityville where even like Ryan Reynolds going after his own family and all of those types of things. If the Warrens are involved, I'm assuming it's fake. Yeah. And this is someone who believes in ghosts with her full chest. I mean, I'm sure like <laughs> a funeral home is going to have a lot of shit left over, but I also think you might just have cancer and that sucks and you're traumatized and you're taking it out on the people around you. Yeah. And especially if you're in a bunch of fucking medical debt, you're going to try to sensationalize the story and get a yeah. lot of money and deals off of it. And those are those things. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be wrong. I mean, again, that's not to say that cancer isn't really fucking scary mm-hmm. and like- There's certainly an interesting tie between folks that are sick or living in a space that is closer to death than most of us might be on the day-to-day are more susceptible to being visited. Mm -hmm. by experiences and obviously the story of the conjurings is really interesting and still even in like the 1800s or whenever Eichmann and Jonah were present in the funeral home giving validity to the fact that people will pay far and wide to experience this kind of canned spooky experience I'm also thinking about Wendy and Sarah being the aim of this podcast, like all this type of stuff. I mean, Sarah is obviously meant to show this unwavering type of faith, like not even allowing herself to think or accept that Matt might die. And that I think strengthens her faith a little bit, especially like in those last few moments of the documentary where she's like, God works in mysterious ways. I'm like, or the
0: trial worked. I don't know. Yeah, her character definitely solidifies a real faith focus in this film and and Especially like the Reverend's character as well. Wendy, I think, was a badass bitch. Yeah. I mean, like, I love that scene where Matt finally confides in her that he's been seeing things and the boy they found in those pictures in the attic, he's already seen in the house before. And she's like, well, you know, we could just go to the fucking library (laughs) and read about what is going on. So she, I feel like, is such a voice of reason.
1: And I will say too, I think in a lot of the other haunting movies that we've covered, now that I'm thinking about it, it's either a woman's body being possessed, right? I'm thinking about The Conjuring. I'm thinking about, you know, Insidious to a degree with Lynn and her just serving as this mystical connection between this other realm and our realm. And I'm even thinking of Amityville Horror. Obviously, that is Ryan Reynolds' character. But Ryan Reynolds' character's whole thing was that violence against women thing. So when we're thinking about hauntings, it's either hauntings that are explicitly like aimed at punishing women, especially like I'm thinking about the Amityville Horror remake. Or it's something like The Conjuring where it's this witch that like wants to kill kids and she's using a mother against her own children. And I think when we do see possessions, spoiler alert, We have a big possession movie coming up for our 100th episode, Wink, 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 Nudge, Nudge, and women are really targeted in those spaces for that reason. So I will say it's interesting, you know, again, based on a true story or not, that it took a different approach where it looked at a young man where we probably look to be one of the biggest examples of like conventional strength, like a young adult man. Like probably otherwise in the prime of his life, if not for cancer. Uh-huh. So kind of seeing somebody like that in more of a conduit or submissive position. Even the fact that Jonah was a male psychic. Yeah. Or medium, whatever you want to call him, right? Because it's usually left for like an older lady type yeah. of character. Like an older lady plays that role in the Poltergeist series. Obviously you have Lynn Shay in the Insidious series. We have Lorraine Warren. Like she is the one who is always used as this spiritual flipboard, for lack of a better term. Whereas the Ed Warrens are like, I'm the man of God. And granted, we do have that with the Reverend in this movie. But I like that the connection to the other realm are male. In this degree and we do have that with insidious too now that i'm thinking about it but still it's different
0: that is really interesting and th- that has me thinking about like the nature of the possessions as well a lot of times when we see women being possessed there's like a really masculine energy to it well the idea of like inhabiting a space is really masculine like when people conquer land they call the land by like she her pronouns like america Like even men's boats, (laughs) men's boats. Yes. You know, like the pronouns we use when it comes to like conquering, possessing ownership, owning, entering and like possession often feels very masculine in that way, especially when a woman is on the other end of that. But in this movie, we don't really see possession for the sake of like the most obvious possession we see is Jonah inhabiting Matt for the sake of added strength. Jonah's like giving a little bit of Casper the friendly ghost here, yeah, which is nice. I like the twist of the friendly ghost. That's something I'm always going to like because there's something about it that's comforting, even though of course we had to find that out after Jonah was already taken out of the house and shit was about to go down. But it's a different kind of possession than we covered last year in our haunted house episodes. It doesn't feel as malicious. It's protective. Jonah is doing it to avoid that malicious possession or to stop these other evil spirits from taking advantage of Matt in his compromised position. Especially
1: when we look at a movie like The Amityville Horror where the little girl ghost we think we can trust because it's Chelsea's imaginary best friend and we don't find her to be threatening and she is really like the mouthpiece for this more malicious spirit that happens and she's like aiding and abetting in that showing how we show the lack of threat from like feminine energy most of the time so
0: not not only and you've been alluding to this as well and you might have said this more clearly and, and i missed it so not only are we not seeing women being possessed in this movie but we're also not seeing feminine spirits right so you're right so it's like we're not seeing this like masculine approach to possession but we're also not seeing these like mead spirited women fuck everybody up oh my god yeah like Yeah. I mean, I think some of the bodies might be women, but like there's no, but there's men and women. There's all different kinds of people in there. Yeah. Jonah is like the one. Everybody else seems to be acting as a collective. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, (laughs) I mean, it's interesting. Like, like I said, I don't think that this movie
1: is lady heavy, but I think it's interesting to look at like why that is and why we almost expect in possession movies for women to be the conduit or women to be the one that is possessed. And I've discussed this at length. Especially toward the first few episodes of this podcast where it's like a lot of women tend to be afraid of possession driven movies because women collectively fear agency over their own bodies Mm. back then and especially now. The idea of your body not belonging to you anymore is very terrifying for people that are socialized as women. And men tend to be afraid of other men overpowering them. So slashers, shit like that. Mm -hmm. Like if we're just looking at it from like the most basic of gender analysis and obviously it's a binary kind of perspective. So there's a lot to be said of what occurs on the in-between. But still, at its very core, we've come to expect that this type of horror movie is speaking to women and this one isn't, but it's also interesting how we're noting these differences.
0: Yeah, wow. I'm surprised by our conversation because I first, I think I had a negative experience watching this movie because it was so stressful and we were watching just an onslaught of haunted house movies last year and I was so stressed and that's when I realized that haunted house movies are actually actively like a genre that I find very scary and always will. Mm-hmm. So I am pleasantly surprised by our conversation. And I think there was a lot more interesting pieces of this movie that I hadn't realized. And I feel like that's how it usually goes at this point. I mean, how many episodes am I going to have an epiphany moment at the end where I'm like, wow, this is actually so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this was another one. So I probably won't watch this again for a while. But when I do, hopefully I'll remember that jump scare so I don't <laughs> scream and-, and run out of the room again and like we said keep up with us for our 100th episode we have a really big movie picked out for you and i think you're gonna enjoy it so if you want to follow along with us throughout this spooky season and beyond follow us on instagram at the horrors podcast and or feel free to email us at the at gmail.com and until next time we're the horrors bye bye, bye.